Hey friends, welcome to This Good Word. My name is Steve Weens, your host, as always. Today's going to be a quick one because uh, as I'm recording this, I am heading on the road to beautiful Omaha, Nebraska. Because <laughs> why not? <laughs> and anyway, I have just a few minutes before I need to get some people up in this house and get some things done and then get on the road. So what I'm going to do today is two things. One, I'm essentially going to be preaching a mini sermon, but also showing how the Bible is not always what it seems to be, and the characters are not always who they seem to be, and why it's important if you're going to be reading the Bible to read as much what's not there as what is there. So, oh my gosh, here we go. So the story I want to tell is an odd story found in the Hebrew scriptures. It's uh, in 1 Kings 18 and 19. So where we're at in the narrative is um, just super quickly after creation, uh, the children of Israel are enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. They get released from captivity by Moses and by the work of God. And then they wander in the wilderness for 40 years before they enter the promised land. And even entering the promised land, if you read Joshua and Judges, you see how much conquest happens. And then you sort of have to ask the question, like, is that how that works? Um, God gives a country to people and then they, obviously, there's already someone there. And so they have to fight for it and they have to kill people in order to get it. And is that how that works? And so hold that question in tension. Um, but the children of Israel do so. They conquer the land. They inhabit the land. And then they essentially uh, become just like the people who used to enslave them. They, they themselves get slaves. They desire to have kings like all the other people. And so they, they, start, they start electing. I was going to say electing. They start naming kings. Some of them are good, but then most of them turn bad. And the story that I'm going to read today, uh, the king is Ahab. And there's also a queen in the story called Jezebel. And I want to say that if you're in any kind of Christian circle, the word Jezebel gets thrown around in a really unfortunate way, like um, in, in really sort of odd, weird, conservative churches. If you're a strong woman with a voice and you're gifted at leadership, but, you, but, but they have a belief that you, you shouldn't be a leader because you happen to be a female and that's not allowed in this particular way of believing things in these weird, odd churches. Uh, and you, but, but maybe you say, oh my gosh, something needs to change. Uh, then you are a Jezebel. That's what they get. That's what gets, that's what you get called. <laughs> it's just awful. So trigger warnings, like if you have been called a Jezebel or you have a Jezebel spirit, oh my gosh, you guys, this is so just, even as I say it, it just, it all sounds so funny and weird and awful, not funny, awful, but, um, please don't worry. No one's going to call you a Jezebel spirit in this story. Or at least I'm not going to. So uh, we have a prophet. His name is Elijah. Prophet's roles in Bronze Age ancient Israel is to remind people 
that uh, there is a God and that God is still pursuing them and loves them and to point out ways in which they have turned away from God. And in the Bible passages, that's what the role of a prophet is. Really, the word prophet just means to bring. So it means to bring God's message to people. Uh, It was horrible. If you were a prophet, your life was basically horrible because you had to tell people really, really hard things. It wasn't about predicting the future. It was about naming uh, the ways in which people were, um, they thought they were God's nation, but they weren't acting that way. They called themselves blessed by God because they were prosperous, but God didn't call them blessed because they were doing the very things that God does not want done to people. So um, there, so this story starts in 1 Kings 18, and there has been a drought in the land, and people believe that the drought is because God is displeased with people. Now, whether or not that's true or not, we don't know. It may be a writing device. Regardless, um, we're in the third year of the drought, and God tells the prophet Elijah, go present yourself to Ahab the king, and I will send rain on the earth. So Elijah goes and presents himself to Elijah, but he doesn't say anything about rain. What he does say is this. Uh, Have all of Israel assemble for me at Mount Carmel, and with 450 prophets of Baal, Baal was the uh, false god that um, Ahab worshipped and his people, and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So he doesn't say anything about the drought, doesn't say anything about the rain that's coming, but he does say it's time for a showdown on the top of a mountain and bring all of Israel and bring the prophets of the false gods. (laughs) So you have to ask yourself, why does he do this, right? And if you grew up like if you grew up like me, you are going to assume that he's telling uh, Ahab that because that's what God wants him to tell him. But there's nothing in the scriptures in First Kings eighteen that says anything about God telling Elijah to do a showdown with Ahab. Nothing. Uh, oh my gosh! So we are left with assumptions. Does Elijah? Is he freestyling here? Is he, does he have a bit of ego going on? What's happening? Regardless, this is exactly what happens. And so they go to Mount Carmel and they have a showdown. And this is how it works. Elijah says, let's do a test. And we're going to prepare two sacrifices. So there's two altars built with stones and wood, and then an animal is placed on that uh, sacrifice, a dead animal. And what you would normally do is you would then, <clears throat> excuse me, you would roast that animal and you would sacrifice it to God. And that would be a way of atoning for your sins. And so Elijah says two sacrifices, two altars, one for Baal, the false god, one for God, my God, who I think is the true God. And if you follow Baal, you just go ahead and pray to him. And what we're looking for here is a miracle. Whatever God is the true God, Elijah says, is going to pour down rain. Not, sorry, not rain, fire from heaven. And this fire is going to consume the animals, going to make the sacrifice. And that's how we're going to see who the true God is. So everyone agrees, according to this story. 
and the prophets of Baal pray. They pray, they cut themselves, but nothing happens. And if you read the scriptures, it's really kind of funny. Elijah sort of taunts them. He says, you know, maybe you better pray louder because perhaps your God is in the bathroom. <laughs> it's just awful and kind of funny. Anyway, so nothing happens, as is perhaps predictable, because this is a story in the Bible. And when Elijah prays, whew, fire comes down. It not only consumes the animal that's on the altar, but it consumes the whole altar. It consumes the rocks, the wood, and everything. And then we read that everyone falls down and says, God, the God of Israel, is the true God. And it's really kind of amazing. Um, I, you know, if, if, and again, these are the kinds of stories where you obviously have to ask, is it real? Is it not real? Um, th did it really happen like that? Are miracles possible? And what I want to say to that is this. Uh, certainly it's possible that this could be a literary device as a way of saying, um, you know, the true God is the true God and the false God isn't. And maybe it didn't happen that way. On the other hand, um, I think you have to, if you're going to read any holy book and there's something that can't be explained physically, uh, you have to, you have to at least say that it's possible that it did. It's possible. A miracle is possible. I think that's the way to read it. Uh, you don't have to read it that way, but that's the way that I choose to read it. It's possible that, that it happened exactly that way. And it's also possible that um, what's true about this story is not necessarily every single tiny little fact or even the big facts like the rain that's fired down from heaven. Uh, but but there is a truth here that there is a God that is pursuing God's people. And so, whew, um, but after everyone bows down and says, the Lord God is the true God, something very interesting happens. If you read 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 40, Elijah says that the people seized the prophets of Baal, do not let any one of them escape. So they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the Wadi Kishon, and he killed them there. So what's happening? Does God ask Elijah to kill these prophets, or does Elijah do it on his own because he's caught up in the moment? At nowhere in the scriptures does it say that God tells Elijah to kill those prophets, and yet he does it anyway. And this is one of those things that I'm saying you have to read the Bible, but also read what's not in the Bible. And you have to say, what, what is that? Because we're going to dive into what happens next, and I think it's connected. So anyway, the rain does come. Uh, but, oh my goodness, Ahab is mad. Jezebel is mad. And you sort of have to think, when you think Ahab and Jezebel... The way I sort of think about it is Ahab and the character of Ahab in the Bible is a whole lot like King Joffrey from Game of Thrones, if you uh, have watched that in the first several seasons. King Joffrey is sort of the 15, 16-year-old brat king that isn't very smart and is certainly very fiery. He likes to kill things and kill people, but he doesn't have much wisdom, and so he's really controlled by his mom, who is the queen regent, Queen Cersei. 
And I think this is kind of what's happening with, um, with Jezebel. Now, again, Jezebel spirit, if you've been called a Jezebel spirit, just because you have a voice and just because you're leadership, you're not Queen Cersei and you're not Jezebel. Okay. <laughs> but it sure does seem like uh, Jezebel was kind of like uh, Cersei in Game of Thrones, if you're into that. Uh, manipulative and pretty evil and whew, you don't want to mess with her. So she threatens Elijah and says, I'm going to kill you today. So you better run. So Elijah runs. And this is where the story gets really interesting. He goes down into the wilderness and he flops down underneath what is called a broom bush. And he says to God, uh, kill me now, take my life because I'm no better than my ancestors. And it's fascinating because I think traditional ways of reading the story on Mount Carmel is that Elijah's just celebrated a huge victory, right? God shows up, the people pray, uh, the rain comes, the drought's over, he's delivered his message, people have turned, but he's also killed a bunch of prophets of Baal and someone has threatened his life. And, um, but you would assume that a prophet is sort of used to that kind of pushback, used to that kind of um, threats. And so, ooh, just that little sip of good coffee there. So the reality that he is so terrified and so depressed maybe that he tells God, kill me now. I'm no better than my ancestors. Something, something bigger is happening here. And so what happens is he falls asleep before anything else is said. He falls asleep and then a messenger of God, an angel, which that's all, that's all the word angel means is messenger, wakes Elijah up and says, uh, here's some water and here's a little cake I've baked for you. Go ahead and eat it. So Elijah does and then he falls asleep again. So sometimes two naps are necessary. <laughs> I love that. And then the messenger wakes him up again and says, have some more water to drink and have some more food to eat because you are, your spirit will need it for the journey you're about to take. So he does. And then we read that he travels 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Horeb where he's going to meet with God. Now, uh, again, this is where you say, is it literal? Is it not? Because we're sort of led to believe that that water and those little cakes that he ate were enough food to allow him to travel 40 days and 40 nights. And that may be true. Uh, I'm open to that. I'm also open to the storyteller. Anytime there's 40 days and 40 nights, that's like a hint. That's a huge hint that a, a huge journey is about to happen that's going to change his entire life and change his entire way of thinking. You know, you think there was um, 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, and this is the same wilderness that they were, that they were wandering in. So anytime in the scriptures there's this 40 days, 40 nights thing, uh, whether it be Noah and the ark, and again, is that real, is it not? Again, it could be. But, but something uh, the rabbis would say, the, the journey of 40 is about something dying and something coming to life. So regardless of, of, of literal, the story that is being told here is mythic in its power. So a person of God who has lived a life where he has been very 
sincere in following God, but has also done some things on Mount Carmel and perhaps other places that perhaps were more about ego than they were about really following what God said. And that's the big question about Mount Carmel. We don't know. Maybe God did tell him that, and it's just not recorded somewhere. But we can also really say that it's possible that, like you and I do, Elijah simply added to the message and did what he wanted to do. And the reason why he's lying under that broom bush and saying he's no better than his ancestors is simply because he's realizing how duplicitous he really is, how he has followed God, but he's also followed his own ego. (laughs) So uh, he travels 40 days and 40 nights, and then he has a mysterious encounter with God where uh, he hears and sees things. He hears uh, this violent trembling and, and, and this, this huge wind. And it says it's such a powerful wind that it's knocking rocks off the mountain and it had to be terrifying. But then we read in the story that, that, uh, even though you think that's how God's going to show up in this huge, massive wind, we read God was God was not in the wind. And then we read there's this earthquake and the massive earthquake. And again, what people in Bronze Age would have believed is these massive natural disasters are God's presence. And so, so naturally, Elijah thought, well, I'm here to meet with God. God was not in the wind, but God certainly is in the earthquake. But we read God was not in the earthquake. And then fire comes. And this is really fascinating. Um now we're not now we've left the realm of hints and we've gone to the obvious so this massive fire how close is elijah to the fire is he almost burned is he not burned we don't know but it says god is not in the fire which i think is a direct challenge to mount carmel it's why i believe that elijah's actions on mount carmel were really all ego that he prayed to God and, and God showed up, but that wasn't how God wanted to show up. And that wasn't what God wanted to do is show his presence in fire. Or maybe it was, maybe it was regardless on the other side of wanting to die on the other side of falling asleep twice and being met by an angel and being given cakes and water on the other side of a journey of 40 days and 40 nights in the presence of God, God's going to show up in a very different way than what you expect. And then we read that there was the sound of sheer silence and that was what God was in. And then God speaks to Elijah with a question. And God says, Elijah, what are you doing here? And I just think this is so fascinating on so many levels. So here's my interpretation of this story. Uh, Carl Jung talked about the two halves of life. And he said, essentially, he used this great way of speaking, this metaphor of like a day. And he said, what worked in the morning won't work in the afternoon, I'm paraphrasing here, but won't work in the afternoon. The truth of the morning will become a lie by the evening. Richard Rohr wrote a book called Falling Upward, which is all about 
his interpretation of the two halves of life. And he essentially says that in the first half of life, and this is not chronological necessarily, some people through major pain or major love uh, enter into the second journey or the second half of life uh, very, very, like early in, in their teens or 20s. Uh, many people don't do it until about my age, 48, 49, 50. But in the first half of life, it's all about ascent. It's all about ego. It's all about making sure. It's all about climbing the mountain. It's all about showdowns. It's all about winning. And you need the first half of life. You need a healthy ego. Like, you, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not even necessarily bad. It's just bad if you stay there. So if you're a 72-year-old person that needs to show the whole world that you are the best person on the planet by becoming president <laughs> or uh, becoming CEO or, or any of those things, if you're still climbing that mountain, if you're still playing those ego games, if you're still doing all that stuff in the second half of life, then you become pathetic um, and you're not wise and you're not following wisdom. So Elijah gets a great gift. And I think in a real metaphorical, real metaphorical, that doesn't make sense. In a metaphorical way, his lying down by the broom bush and saying, I want to die and then falling asleep is essentially a way of understanding he did die. Something died. His ego died. His ego self died. And when he gets up and takes this journey, this 40 day journey into towards the mountain to meet with God. He doesn't see God in the wind, doesn't see God in the earthquake, doesn't see God in the in the fire, but does meet God in the silence. And then God asks him a question, why are you here? That is, that signifies that Elijah has taken and is taking the second half of life journey, which is all about descent, which is all about joining forces with a wisdom that is far larger than you where you stop getting your identity through your achievement, through your accept, through your success, through your, um, through your um, winning, through making sure everybody knows that you're on the right side. You have transcended um, me and you have entered into us. And this movement is often painful. It's often challenging and difficult. Uh, it often requires you to let go of so many things that you used to think were so important so that you can enter into the journey of wisdom. And it's all about letting go. And it's fascinating because the rest of the story, if you read about it, the rest of the story of Elijah is all letting go. Uh, very soon he's going to get, he's going to sort of uh, transfer his power to a young man named Elisha or Elisha. And then he will, in a very magical kind of way, he will just be met by God and his life will end. Um, but not by death, but by being taken up with God. I mean, it's fascinating. And again, literal, not literal. I don't know. Um, I'm, I'm not that interested in whether it's literal or not. What I am interested in is the fact that there was a man that journeyed through the two halves of life uh, seemingly well, I was going to say successfully, but that would be a bit of a misnomer about the second half of life because it's not about success. It's about letting go. But he seems to have let go well. He seems to have let go of his, of his disappointments, of his failures, of even of his successes. Uh, 
And what he ends with, Elijah, is complete intimacy and union with God. It's very similar to Moses. Moses ends his life uh, having led the children of Israel out of Egypt and through the wilderness. But before he gets to the promised land, he dies. But if you read that story, you get the, at the end of Deuteronomy, you get the sense that intimacy with God was really his prize. That was really the promised land for him. You get the sense that union with the divine. And, and um, Moses simply being with the divine was enough. So my friends, that's all the time I have. I'm actually a little late in waking people up and getting ready to go on the road here. But here's my, here's my invitation for you. Uh, if you find yourself on the threshold between the two halves of life, maybe your successes have been waning lately. Maybe your successes haven't been waning, but they've been less satisfying. Maybe you are sensing the invitation for a 40 day, 40 night journey. Uh, whether that be literal or metaphorical, so that you can meet with God, meet with the divine in a way that you've never done before. Uh, here's my invitation. Take it. Take it. How do you know if you're being invited? I don't think it means leaving family. I know it doesn't. I don't think it means necessarily leaving a job, though it might. I think it means leaving a way of thinking. And maybe leaving a certain religious tribe that just is no longer holding the truth that you hold or holding on to a truth that feels very feeble and weak. And they are calling that the absolute truth. But you know in your gut that it's not. Uh, as you read the scriptures even, as you listen to the voice of God, as you pay attention in the world, you know that the truth they're holding on to is an old truth. It's a first half of life truth. And they're entitled to hang on to it if they want to. They just will never get to the beautiful second half of life of wisdom. But if you're being invited into it, then I suggest you go. I suggest you take it. I suggest you walk toward that, um, that mountain. So if you are being invited, I think you're going to be given a gift of the cakes and the water. I don't know what that's going to look like, but that's going to be an invitation. And then as you walk toward the mountain and as you meet with the divine, as you meet with God, remember that God will just will not show up in the familiar ways that you think God should. Now for you, that's not going to be wind, earthquake, or fire, but you can probably name the familiar ways that you're expecting God to show up. And you need to know God just will not show up in that way. In the second half of life, God shows up in a far different way, the sound of sheer silence. And that doesn't mean that God will show up to you in silence. <laughs> That's how God showed up to Elijah. We don't know how God will show up to me or to you in the second half of life. But my invitation to you is if you're sensing that invitation, take it. And if you don't know if you're sensing the invitation, what it's generally accompanied by in my experience is a great dissatisfaction with the things that you used to think were so important, the things that you used to really, really gun for. It's associated with um, really questioning certain things, certain truths that you thought were absolutely absolute, 
but now you don't think they are. Now you think they're, that was maybe one way of thinking for the first half of life, but it's not going to take you where you need to go for the second half of life. And the second half of life, you're much more motivated by um, universal things. Um, you're much less motivated by personal gain. You still get mad. You still feel selfish. You still get angry. You still feel all those feelings. But a life that's just based on you climbing your mountain and claiming your victory just really seems as small as it actually is. So my friends, uh, may you climb the mountain of the first half of life and, and get that over with and do that because you need to. But when you get invited to descend the mountain, um, and by the way, there's a great book by David Brooks right now called The Two Mountains. I think it's called The Two Mountains. Just search David Brooks. But it's essentially the exact same thing. It's written from a different perspective, but it's the two halves of life all over again because that's deep wisdom that lots of people write about. Uh, but I'm reading that book right now. It's fabulous. Also, uh, Falling Upward by Richard Rohr explains it so, so well. So get into either of those two books. But may you accept the invitation and may you go into um, the second half of life and may you meet God and may you get great wisdom and may you let go of those unsatisfying first half of life things. Thank you, my friends. Grace and peace. We'll see you next week. Hey friends, thanks so much for listening to This Good Word. If you love this podcast, there's three ways that you can support my work. One is by jumping on Patreon, patreon.com slash thisgoodword. You can become a patron at various levels and get lots of good free stuff, including free tickets to any live events that I do, signed books, and other stuff. The second way is to share your favorite episodes via Twitter and Facebook. Uh, email, however it is that you share content. Let some friends know that you love it. And then third is to go on iTunes and leave a rating or a review. So thanks so much, my friends. We are dust and breath. We are limited and limitless. We are human and holy, and we are in it together. <laughs>